to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number five zero seven. Hello and welcome back to the Outdoor Station and the first podcast of 2020. I'm your host Bob Cartwright and the Outdoor Station is the longest running podcast in the world dedicated to the adventurer, hiker, backpacker, cyclist, paddler, in fact any self-powered traveller in the world who has a story to share. If you're new to the Outdoor Station, please do drop by the website and see our huge back catalogue of over 500 podcasts spanning 15 years. Maybe join our newsletter and let us know who you think we should be speaking to. This podcast is the first in a two-part interview with Anna Blackwell, a British 26-year-old adventurer or adventuress who took a gap year at 18 and, quite frankly, hasn't sat still since. Please check out her website, annablackwell.co.uk, for detailed accounts of her trips, which include Sweden, Scandinavia, France, Spain, North Africa, and a little 4,000-kilometre kayak from central London to the Black Sea. As you'll hear, Anna is a bundle of energy, and in this episode, we talk specifically about the King's Trail in Sweden and the 2019 1,300-kilometre Green Ribbon, which follows the length of the mountains on the Swedish-Norwegian border. Anna is currently a student doing her Masters and also supports herself as a writer, photographer and speaker. She's a keen environmentalist who aims to minimise her footprint to the greatest extent possible on these trips and works with sustainable, focused organisations. Yes, for a 26-year-old, I'm sure you'll agree, she's already crammed a lot of adventure into those years since she caught the bug during her gap year. I always grew up uh, quite outdoorsy. I did a lot of walking with my parents, my family, a lot of horse riding. Uh, but I didn't really do any sort of proper adventure until I was 18 on my gap year. Uh, I travelled to Central America as part of a gap year project. And through that, I ended up trekking for three weeks through the jungles and mountains in Costa Rica. And that was the first time I'd really done anything that hard and that exciting and that adventurous. So that really kicked it off for me. That was what uh, sowed the seed. And I really, really caught the bug after that. And it's certainly a more attractive and warmer um, experience than Duke of Edinburgh, which I understood you did and, and, like most people, didn't really enjoy. Yeah, that's an understatement. I got to the end of DV when I was a teenager and I swore that I would never go trekking or camping again, uh, which is quite amusing because I now do a lot of that. Uh, but no, I, I really hated DV. I think it was because people were telling me I had to do it. And in that teenage mindset, I had to sort of rebel against that, I think. Oh, so it wasn't the fact that you were doing a, an expedition or whatever a trip, a version of the, the Edinburgh you were doing, uh, and it was pouring with rain and you had too, too much heavy gear. It was actually the fact that you were being forced as a teenager to do something. Yeah, I think it was more that. <laughs> I mean, we did also have very bad weather uh, and ridiculously heavy kit. Looking back on it, the tents were huge and just so heavy. 
I think it's sort of part of the process is they just give you as much kit as possible to see whether you kind of whether you can handle it. Yeah, it's do you know just an aside from our conversation. Really, I've got a footpath next to to my property here, and we see numerous children come through from uh, inner cities, predominantly with uh, the Duke of Edinburgh. But you can always see them, and they're never, ever, ever do they ever look happy. And it's such a shame to see people's first introduction to the outdoors and potentially a future of adventure or or uh, expeditions being thwarted by, unfortunately, just the wrong gear. Yeah, it's surprising. But moving on to more exciting things, you've done a whole variety of trips, uh, some of which I mentioned uh, in the introduction. And in particular, I wanted to talk about your experience is of doing the Green Ribbon, if you call it, from uh, the Arctic and northern Scandinavia. Yes. And the Kingsladen and also kayaking the continent. Three completely different trips in some respects. So would you like to talk about the Kingsladen first of all? Because I know a lot of our listeners are interested in doing the King's Trail in, in Sweden and they've heard a lot about it and there's a handful of people that have done it, but not a solo female. So give me, a, give me an overview of how you found it. So the Kingsladen was sort of my first big wild trip, I guess, solo trip. Uh, the year before, I had spent a couple of months walking a thousand miles, which hadn't quite been enough of a challenge for me. Um, so through the Kingsladen, what I wanted to do was push myself outside of my comfort zone more. Uh, so I was wild camping every day, carrying, I think my rucksack was about 22 kilos. And as you said, it goes through Arctic Sweden um, so it's about 480 kilometres long, I believe, and it goes through these fantastic mountains and valleys and alongside glacial rivers. And it is truly sensational landscapes around you. And I think actually it makes a really good um, introduction to sort of the tougher adventures. There are huts and cabins along the route to every sort of 18 to 20 or so kilometres, which make great options if you want to stay somewhere warm and dry with a wood-burning stove. Um, I shied away from that option and I was sleeping in a tent pretty much every day um, and avoiding people actually. I wanted to see how I would cope uh, by myself and sort of more isolated and I very quickly discovered that I actually I really loved it. I thrived in those moments where there was no one else around um, I loved it when things were getting really challenging, whether it was a steeper section of the mountain or the weather was starting to turn on me. Uh, those were the moments that I really started to live for. Um, although that said, sitting at the top of a mountain watching a sunset, it sometimes would have been nice to have another person with me. But on the whole, I discovered that I was really happy just in my own company. Um, and the question I always get is if I ended up talking to the reindeer because I saw thousands and thousands of reindeer literally that is not an exaggeration there were so many um and the answer is yes i absolutely spoke to the reindeer they became great company very good listeners <laughs> just give people an idea then what was involved in the preparation of this is is it easy to find the information about how to get to the start point and away from the finish point uh, which direction you you went i presume you went north to south and also what time of year it was so I went in August. I went, I think it was probably the third week of August and it took me about five weeks to do. So that was actually quite late in the season for doing the King's Trail. Most people start around July and do it July, August time. Um, it's worth noting that the cabins along the route, the huts actually close in, I believe it's the third week of September. Um, and they are often where you buy your food along the route. 
Um, yeah, getting to and from the start and finish point was actually quite challenging to work out how to do that. I did do it north to south. Um, I don't particularly know why. I think maybe I had read a blog and that was the direction they did it. So I just did it that way. So to get to Arbisco, which is the start point up a couple hundred miles north of the Arctic Circle in Sweden, uh, I flew to Stockholm and then had a, I think it's a 14 hour overnight train, which is actually a really fantastic adventure in its own right and just quite a nice way to start the trip. Um, so hopped off the train and the start of the trail is literally at this train station. Um, so you can just walk off into the fells, which is pretty magical. And then I finished in Hemavan, which is uh, about 285 miles to the south. Um, and I think it was another overnight bus, in fact, down to Stockholm. Um, although you can catch a flight as well. Um, but I always try to avoid, avoid internal flights and things. The preparation and research that you did for this then, was it fairly easy to explore and book things from the UK before you went? Yeah, it was. Um, well, obviously, flights are easy to sort out. The train um, I booked just through SJ, which is the Swedish train service, sj.se. Um, and then I think the bus back, I found out about it while I was actually on the Kungsleden because I hadn't booked my return travel. Um, I had the luxury of an, sort of an open deadline um, or not having a deadline even. Um, so I, I hadn't booked any return travel. Um, so that I think I probably found through Googling or talking talking to someone um, I did the King's Aiden in 2016 and back then, years ago, um, there actually wasn't very much information about it in English. That has now changed. Though. I think there are two guidebooks in English and there are so many blogs about it as well. Um, so you can find a lot of stuff online now that I, I couldn't find when I did it. I know before that you did the Camino de Santiago, uh, which is obviously a much more established route and there's plenty of information about that. So was this your first real navigation working with Map and Compass uh, and the first time you had to use it? Because I know the trail is marked, but it's not as as well marked as something like the, the Camino, is it? Yeah, it's quite hard to go wrong when you're on the Camino. Um, yeah, I think it was really. Uh, although I think there were probably only a couple of days in the middle section where I actually needed to use my map and compass, as you said, a lot of it is really, really well marked. Um, you've got the classic red bit of paint on stones. There are some signs during the busier sections. Um, but in the middle, um, sort of the middle third of it, I guess, there is a lot less. There aren't any cabins run by the Swedish tourist board. Um, and it does just feel a bit more uh, removed and isolated, I guess. Uh, and I was actually really looking forward to that section. Uh, before I started it, I went to Wales and did a summer mountain skills course because uh, I wanted to make sure that I really brushed up on my map reading skills, my nav skills, just in case I did end up in a situation where I was reliant on it if the weather was bad or anything like that. Um, so I made sure that I was uh, in a good position before I went, and that course was really useful. Did you also top that up by using a, a mapping system on your phone or your or laptop if you took one, a, a pad or something with you, or a, a GPS-type system to confirm where you were? 
Yeah, I carried a Garmin InReach Explorer, which is a GPS, although I actually only got that when I was maybe 10 days into the trek because my my parents wanted to be able to see where I was because they didn't like not hearing from me because the uh, phone signal is very sporadic. And even then I was actually putting my phone on airplane mode because it was nicer just to ignore the outside world and immerse myself properly in where I was and what I was doing. So I did get a InReach Explorer, which is a fantastic GPS option um, and also has messaging as well. So I could text my parents, which they loved, me not so much. Uh, so if I ever did doubt where I was um, or even just to check my progress, I could just have a look at that and it would sort of show me the distance that I'd done that day and show me my location, importantly. And the best feature which I haven't yet had to use, thankfully, is the SOS button. So if things did go really wrong, I could have pressed that and a helicopter would have eventually got to me. And how did you find the the maps in Sweden? Are they as good as the OS maps in the UK? Do you know they're fantastic, actually? Um, I think I might have to say that because the map company that I use actually sponsored me for the Green Ribbon track I did this year. Um, I did approach them. They, they are really, really good maps, um, very detailed uh, and because the part of Sweden where the Kungsleden is and where the Green Ribbon Trek that I did this year is, it's very popular with um, hikers in the summer and uh, skis, skiers and ski touring in the winter. So the maps are to a very, very high standard. So just talking about the Kungsleden on its own for a second, what would you advise people, what would you say were the negatives that people don't really talk about? I mean, I presume there's plenty of uh, fast-flowing clean water, so that's not going to be an issue. But what about bugs, mozzies, that type of thing that people should be aware of if they're considering that? <laughs> so when I when I did it, I actually didn't have any problems with mosquitoes, but I did this year uh, when I was in a very similar area and they drove me insane. So that is something to bear in mind if you're up in Arctic Sweden uh, or northern Scandinavia in the summer, height of summer, mosquitoes, midges, aha, they are a nightmare. Take a headnet, take plenty of mosquito repellent and some long sleeves as well. You can now get sort of shirts and long sleeve layers that have like they're, they're impregnated, treated with um, mosquito repellent. They are worth the investment. I, that is speaking from experience. <laughs> um, so that is one thing to bear in mind. Also, if you're looking at doing the Kingsleden, keep an eye out for when um, there's something called the Fjellraven Classic, um, which is a sort of five-day um, event that runs on the, the sort of the most northern section of the Kingsleden. And I, th I think thousands of people do it. It's a really, really big event and growing every year as well. So if you are seeking solitude and remoteness in the mountains, do not go then because <laughs> there are just people everywhere. Um, but if it's your first time going off and doing a trip like this, have a look at it because actually it's probably quite a good introduction to doing something in a, uh, a wilder area where you do have a bit of in infrastructure and support. Um, but yeah, that is something to keep an eye out for, definitely. And the the huts you're referring to, are they running the same basis as the Scottish body system, that they can be extremely basic, but they're all free, and if you need to, you can use them for shelter, but uh, you can choose not to use them if you want to? Polar opposite to Bothies. I've spent quite a few nights in Bothies, and I love them. They have a certain charm to them. Um, the cabins and huts in Sweden are impeccable. They are absolutely beautiful places. They are usually staffed. I think all of them along the Kungsleden are staffed. Um, they have a really lovely sort of kitchen area. They've got um, nice tabletop gas stoves and things. Um, 
a system for collecting water. A lot of them have a sauna as well. Um, and I think you have to pay, I think it works out at about £35 per night. So they are actually pretty pricey, uh, given that there is no electricity, there's no running water, but they are very, very cosy places. And they do always make space for people to sleep in. So even if it, it even if all the beds are full, they always have more mattresses that they can pull out and sort of bedding and things like that. So if you do get caught out and you can't get your tent up or you don't have a tent, they, they will make room for you. I know food is fairly expensive in Sweden compared to the UK at the moment, certainly. Are people able to pick up provisions as they go along? I realise you say some of the huts sell uh, provisions as well, but I presume they're not uh, not particularly cheap. No, they, they're normally about £10, I think, for a, a sort of dehydrated expedition meal. Um, they sell adventure foods um, along the way. So you can, you can buy food. Some of the... Uh, the bigger cabins have quite big shops as well so you can uh, go for the cheaper end of the spectrum and buy sort of instant noodles and things like that which are a fraction of the price um they don't quite have the same nutritional value but i'm sure enough packets of them and you'll get enough calories in um so the food is very very expensive uh if you're buying it along the trail uh you can get it a bit cheaper from the bigger mountain stations i think um and they are every sort of five to seven days of trekking um and they're yeah bigger bigger places that have a a larger variety of what you can buy um but yeah it does that the price racks up very quickly so your advice then would be to make sure that you've stocked up and take as much as you can physically carry when you when you start yeah and there is also um it's it does take a lot of effort but you can post things ahead to mountain stations they charge a fee uh often which i think is about 10 pounds but if you're able to sort of bulk buy food in the uk first um if you can get in touch with the mountain station you can often arrange to post things to them um so that can help sort of keep the costs down but it's worth working out whether that is actually worth it for the cost um and see how much difference there is there did you work out what the total cost of that trip was as a matter of interest do you know i don't think i ever did um i did have to buy quite a lot of new kit for it so i didn't have a a good tent in fact i don't think i had a tent at all before that so i did have to buy things like tent a good sleeping bag mat um all of that sort of stuff which is that gets very expensive worth the investment though because i'm still using most of that kit now um along the way though i only paid to stay in maybe three or four uh, of the huts um or mountain stations um but the food i did have to buy along the way um, but I'm actually, yeah, I dread, I dread to think how much it costs actually, because it does, it, it can be surprising how quickly uh, it does get expensive, considering you're sort of in the wilderness. Yeah, well, we we all suffer from exactly the same problems, but sometimes it's just worthwhile uh, being able to say to people, yes, it cost five hundred or eight hundred pounds or whatever, when mm-hmm. you consider the flights and and the basics that you needed along the way, you know, completely excluding whatever you spent on equipment because we're all gear freaks yeah. and we end up spending far too much money on equipment. <laughs> anyway, so that's the that's the King's Laden. So let's move on now, two or three years later, to the Green Ribbon, the one you've completed this year, 2019. Now, this sounds quite exciting because it really does sound like the next step above uh, the, previous, the previous trail. Yeah, so the Green Ribbon, I trekked a 1,000 kilometres across 
Arctic and Northern Scandinavia again. I really, really love it up there. Um, and this took me about eight and a half weeks to complete uh, from July through till September this year. And again, I was doing it by myself. I really quite like solo, solo treks. The Outdoor Station is your one-stop shop for audio and video entertainment for the self-powered traveller. You can find us online, on internet radio, on smartphones, on smart TVs, on YouTube, on Apple TV, on Now TV and on Facebook. You can also stream us live via the iTunes app or TuneIn radio app. The list is continually expanding and for full details of how to subscribe, download or stream and enjoy our massive free library please visit theoutdoorstation.co.uk explain to people exactly what the route is this so so they can grasp it a bit more so I started at what is called the Trerix Roset, or Three Countries Cairn, which is where Finland, Sweden and Norway meet well up into the Arctic. It's sort of the most northern bit you can get to in Sweden. And from there, I slowly but surely followed uh, the mountains on the Swedish-Norwegian border, um, heading south for a thousand kilometres until I reached a little town called Grivosvun, uh, where there is a mountain station. Um, and that was my finish point. And was this trail, I mean, this trail's a, a series of trails all linked together, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. So it's the so the Green River or Gröna Bandit in Swedish is a sort of a recognised uh, long distance trek um, in Scandinavia, really. There are very few people who have heard of it in the UK. Uh, in Scandinavia, it's, yeah, people, people sort of know of it a bit better. And you basically have the start point and the finish point, or the sort of the two extremes, uh, the Trex Road and Grivelswin. And between that, you have, I think it's about four or five different checkpoints. Uh, and you have to either go through them or to the north, south, west of them. So I still don't know my north, south, east, west just off the top of my head. I have to sort of gesture it out. Um, so you have to go uh, either through or to the west of these checkpoints along the way that are either mountain stations or towns. Other than that, you can completely create your own route. You can follow whatever trails you want, or you can go through parts where there aren't even any trails, which is what I chose to do a few times. Um, the, the, just the, the only things you have to sort of, uh, the only rules, I guess, are you have to be man-powered um, and you have to be self-supported as well. So you can't have someone kind of coming with you, carrying all of your food, for example, um, or meeting you along the way to give you your feed but you can post your own feed ahead which is what i did by the sound of it then it's it's not organized but it's recognized in the sense that if you do you get a, a certificate or something at the end of it if you've done all the things and ticked all the boxes yeah you get a certificate and your name engraved in a plaque at the mountain station at the finish point but i actually am not eligible for either of these things because the whole the whole distance that most people do is about 1,300 kilometres. And that had been my original plan when I started. Um, but I think it was about two days before I started the trek, I found out that I had been offered a place to study a master's back in England, which was very exciting. But it meant I had about a month less than I had sort of accounted for when I was planning. Um, and a month in the scheme of a trek that length is a that is a, a big amount of time. Um, and then... 
in the first week as well, uh, I ran into a few incidents, which then delayed me further by another five or six days, at which point I realized that I was, I wasn't going to be able to do the 1,300 kilometers and still enjoy myself. And my priority was to get as much out of the time as I could. Um, so I ditched the idea of doing 1,300 and then sort of did as much distance as I could in the time I had. Um, and did a spot of hitchhiking towards the end uh, in order to get to the the mountain station that most people finish at. Um, so the total distance that I did was 1,000 kilometres. Well, I understand reading your blog, which I must suggest people uh, go onto your website naturally. I did mention it at the beginning of the podcast. I'll mention it at the end. But um, read your blog and you had a few uh, few, few few issues, and one of which was uh, the, the, the Nino, Nemo tent that you were using, unfortunately, uh, suffered a little bit of damage. Yeah, that was on the Kingsley, and um, a bit of damage is a slight understatement there. Yeah, my um, Nemo equipment tent that I had on the Kingsley and collapsed on me in the first week, I think it was, um, during a particularly stormy night. Um, so I was woken up uh, in the early hours of the morning with wet tent fabric clinging to my face and pretty much suffocating me, um, which is not much fun. And it then became almost impossible to pitch it in anything other than completely still conditions. Um, thankfully, I did manage to get a replacement tent uh, shipped out to me pretty quickly. So I now have a much better tent, Hilleberg, um, which I thoroughly recommend. Those tents are indestructible and I have really tested it to its limit. Yes, I saw the pictures of your Acto. It uh, looks good. So I, I misunderstood then. So what caused the delay on the green ribbon? Maybe I've got your blogs mixed up now, but did you get stung or something by hornets? Yeah. Yes. So, um, well, first of all, the first mishap, and this all happened on the same day, I think it was day eight um, of my first, well, of the, of the trek. Um, first of all, my camera broke um, and I had commitments to sponsors and magazines for this trek. Um, and part of what I give them in return for equipment is uh, high quality photos and not having a, a good camera kind of <laughs> scuppers that a little bit. So first of all, my camera broke and I knew that I was going to have to get a replacement sorted. Um, and sort of a series of events unfolded after that happened. Um, because my camera had broken, I decided to push on further that day to get to a hut. Um, in, I was in Norway at the time and I wanted to get to this hut because I was just in a really rubbish mood and I wanted a bit of comfort and ideally a bit of company because uh, most people tend to aim for the huts rather than camping. Um, and while I was sort of powering on to this hut, I was getting stalked by hornets, which is really not fun. Um, but what I didn't notice is that I actually was stung by a hornet on the knuckle of one of my fingers, the middle finger of my left hand. Um, and later that night, I discovered that this was going to be quite a big issue because I had a really, really bad reaction to it. And my finger swelled up massively. Like I didn't know your finger could swell that much. Um, the biggest issue is I had a ring on at the time and my ring cut off circulation to the rest of my finger um, which was then turning blue um, and things were getting quite stressful. Um, I had made it to this hut and there was another chap in there, a Swedish guy called David, and I had to wake him up at three in the morning um, to see if he could help me cut the ring off my finger because I didn't really know what else I could do. I couldn't even sort of twist the ring. It was on there. It was wedged on really tightly. Um, so I went and woke David up and he tried to cut the ring off, but actually just 
cut my own finger pretty deeply um so there's now blue finger ring stuck on quite a lot of blood everywhere a slightly traumatized david um and in the end we had to phone um the emergency services and we had to get an ambulance to come to us um and actually we wouldn't have been able to get an ambulance as easily if my camera hadn't broken and i hadn't pushed on for that extra bit of distance so i think my camera sacrificed itself <laughs> knowing what was coming um so that i could get help otherwise i would have had to hit the sos button on my uh, my garmin and that would have been a very different story that probably would have been a helicopter and a lot more drama um but yeah after that um i took a few days off and i went down to stockholm to pick up a replacement camera and uh, five or six days later I was back on the trail with a intact finger and a working camera isn't it interesting that when you're out in the world, a series of coincidental small things can create a m- momentous difference to your well-being? Yeah, it was a very stressful few hours. And I made the mistake of phoning my dad as well. And I think this is probably the first time I've ever done this when I've been abroad on an adventure expedition and... I haven't known what to do at all to the extent I've had to phone my dad. Normally, I'm very good at uh, coming up with solutions for pretty much whatever is thrown at me. But on this occasion, I had absolutely no idea what to do. Um, And so my dad received a call in the early hours of the morning with me borderline hysterical, which is also very rare. Um, I'm normally very chilled. Um, And yeah, so he sort of shared the trauma of it as well, poor thing. (laughs) As a parent, that would be one of the worst things to hear. But you want to hear it, be there and supportive. But it's also, oh, my God, I can't do anything about it. So, you know, looking at that actual incident on its own and again, advising anybody that would want to uh, do something similar in that area. What could you have done or what would you consider now as being an additional piece of equipment or whatever that would prevent, resolve, get round that type of situation if it happened again in the future? For starters, I will never wear rings on uh, adventures like this again. (laughs) Um, That's my biggest lesson. I think actually from the trek, the whole thing, don't wear rings. Um, Secondly, I've been looking for a sort of a pen knife or a leatherman or something like that, which has um, some sort of little saw that I could have used because there was absolutely nothing in this hut that could even remotely cut through my ring. Um, and just having some sort of pocket tool with that on it would have been a game changer, I think. Um, although it also could have potentially led to worse damage if David had been uh, wielding a sharper knife. Um, but I think then I probably would have had the confidence to try and cut it off myself. So yeah, I'm gonna. That's something I want to invest in before my next trip is a a good tool. Mm. So any listeners, send recommendations my way, please. <laughs> well, I think what you'll find most of those tools with saws are all saws for cutting wood, as opposed to metal. So it's uh, yeah, it's quite a challenge to. I mean, as you were talking, I was trying to think how would I get round it. I have seen a an Indian technique, which is basically where they take um, thread. And they wind thread round your finger uh, below where yeah. the where the swelling is. Obviously, I mean, by the sound of it, yours had swollen up quite considerably. But they're below the, the swelling and then they slide it across the thread. But you need to have a bit of space to do that and also plenty of thread as well. 
Yeah, so I did a first aid course before my kayaking expedition last year. And um, the medic who took us through this course showed us how to do that and actually demonstrated with the ring that I ended up having to get cut off. <laughs> um, but by the stage, by the by the time I had woken up and realised just how big my finger was, there was absolutely, I, I don't think I could even get thread under the ring. It was that that big. Mm, yeah, there. Well, there's a thought. There's an interesting thought. So back to the the trip itself. Then the disasters to one side. How would you describe it for people that uh, are competent in the outdoors and can navigate well? Is it is it really tough going? Is it uh, compared to going up and down the Cairngorms, or were you at a certain level and you stayed at a certain altitude and you kept that way? Um, so I was generally between eight hundred and thousand meters. Um, up in the mountains, a lot of it, a lot of it through Sweden is in sort of quite gentle fell landscape. Um, so a lot of what you go through, Sweden doesn't really have very big dramatic mountains. So the terrain is generally very. Um, if you're experienced in the mountains, it's pretty easy going. There are some river crossings that can be more challenging depending on um, how wet it's been, how much the sort of snow's been melting and things like that. Um, so that's something to take into consideration, especially if you're by yourself, like I was. I ended up having to walk sort of a, a couple of kilometres along a river, um, waiting for it to be sort of slower and wider so I could cross. Um, the mountains in Norway were significantly more different actually than Sweden. Um, it was sort of noticeable when you could stand on Sweden and look across, if you could see more jaggedy mountains, you kind of knew that was Norway. Um, so they were more challenging. Um, but again, it's all, it's all uh, accessible. Um, if you are, if you're familiar and competent in the mountains anyway, then it's sort of your dream trip really. Um, because you do get that sense of just being really really far away from anything um and you feel like you're in this proper wilderness this really remote area um but there are depending on which trails you're doing there are occasional cabins there are occasional people and at the end of the day you've got uh, quite a good emergency service in scandinavia as well just in case things do go really really wrong um so you don't have to worry about that too much uh, and same question regarding the King's Laden. What about if you were going along and wanted to top up your supplies as you went? Is that feasible or is your system of posting ahead and how easy was that uh, the preferred option? Yeah, you have to you do have to post ahead on um, on the green ribbon um, just because the uh, the sort of communities, the towns, the barely even towns, the villages that you go through, they often uh, they either won't have a shop or the shop they have won't sort of cater to trekkers very well um, or they'll just have a really limited selection and really do you want to buy eight of the same dehydrated meal probably not um so what i did was uh, i pre pre-planned my route for starters and i kind of had estimates of how long different sections were going to take me and i had identified mountain stations or um sort of postal points along the way whether that was yeah a mountain station or a shop I think I had a hotel at one point um and I contacted them and explained what I was doing and they sort of knew about the green ribbon Granana Bandit uh because you know quite a few people do it um throughout the year or throughout the summer um and then 
I had to, yeah, set set up. I had piles of all of my sort of resupplies per different place, depending on how many days I was going to be going, the sort of distance before my next resupply. Um, and then I had to divvy up all of my meals and my snacks and my breakfasts and weighed out my bags of coffee and things like that and my hot chocolate sachets, my bags of Haribo as well, which always got eaten the day that I uh, opened up my resupply package. Um, I actually posted all of that once I got to Sweden. Um, I was lucky because I was there with my family um, on holiday before I travelled up to start my trek. And my mum is actually Swedish and speaks Swedish. So a lot of that, I I roped her in to help me. Um, Although pretty much everyone in Sweden does speak English, so language isn't really a barrier when you're there. Um, But all of that I posted just through the Swedish postal service. um, And they were very helpful. And it wasn't too expensive. I think it was probably about 15, 20 pounds um, per resupply package, maybe a little less than that. Um, and they were sort of weighing three to four kilos, I think. Um, and all of them arrived where I needed them to be. Um, it was, it was a little bit of faff, uh, getting all of that organized, but there wasn't really an alternative. Um, so yeah, you, you have to do it. And is this what other people do that you met on the way of the Green Ribbon or, or the research that you've done? Does everybody do the same technique? Yeah, completely they do. And actually there were uh, one or two places that I arrived to and when they heard that I was doing the Green Ribbon, it then transpired that other people who had set out to do it that year had uh, given up early for whatever reason and their resupply package was still there. Um, which meant that I got the pickings of whatever they had sent ahead as well, um, which was quite handy. Got got a bit more variety in. So the only thing that immediately comes to mind then as being potentially awkward is, I know you were using a gas cooking system, is resupply of gas canisters, because obviously, well, in the UK anyway, you can't post them. So how did that work? Yeah, so that, um, most of the places that I got to, I could buy those, Um and I think there was only one shop where they didn't have any. Um, and the woman who ran the shop arranged for a shop in the next town over to um, drive drive two gas canisters over for me. Um, and I didn't get sort of charged a delivery fee or anything. They just have a, yeah, a, a really good sense of community when you're sort of that remote up in Scandinavia. Um, so that was the only sort of one that could have been a problem. But I only had to wait a couple of hours for that. Um, but I actually carried as well, I carried a little, um, a Savota stove, which is a sort of a twig burning stove. Um, so I was using that a lot, particularly in the first few weeks when it was very dry and I sort of had, there was a lot of wood on the ground, um, which meant that I think I only used my stove maybe two or three times, um, to cook my dinner in the first few weeks, uh, which saved me gas as well. Mm. Although obviously that then did that was a bit of extra weight in my rucksack. They're not the lightest things. Um, but I carried it for my, for my own pleasure and well-being because I just love cooking over a bit of a flame and smelling of um, wood smoke as well. <laughs> it's really satisfying. My thanks to Anna for taking the time to chat with me. And in part two, we discuss her 2018 4,000 kilometre tandem kayak she did with her friend Katie from central London to the Black Sea. If you want to know more about Anna and her adventures, please check out her website, annablackwell.co.uk, or drop by theoutdoorstation.co.uk and see the show notes. Over the holiday period, I spoke with several inspirational women like Anna. 
and I'm currently lining up some interesting guys with unusual stories to tell to balance it all out. Plus, I'm setting myself a monthly bivvy challenge this year to record my adventures for those who like to keep it simple. There's loads going on, and of course, the inevitable studio build edges ever closer. Please, wherever you can, leave some feedback on the outdoor station itself, on iTunes, or wherever you can using whichever social media you prefer. It all helps keep building the audience. And finally, I hope all my listeners have a happy, healthy, and above all, safe 2020. Until next time, folks. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorsstation.co.uk. I'm going to be the best version of me.